everybody, Magnus here. You know, a lot of people make fun of 1990s comics. The way they tell it, you'd almost think they weren't avidly collecting those same comics themselves. But me? I've got a real soft spot for 90s comics, and so, starting in December of 2017, I'm launching a six-part mega-series called Cover Date, January 1991. The idea is to talk about, well, comics with a January 1991 cover date. Anyway, yeah, that's right. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is going back to January 1991 for a look back at what comics were really like. Is it really as bad as people say? Well, there's only one way to find out. I want you to test drive some 1990s comics along with me. Who knows? You just might find something to fall in love with all over again. So, come back to January 1991 with Trennis Magnus for a fond, festive, frolicking trip down memory lane. The fun starts in December 2017 only at Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. You can find Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at TwoTrueFreaks.com or by searching in iTunes. Or, I guess you could search on Google if you're feeling really lazy. Cover date. January 1991 because 1990s comics are awesome. studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, Year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Welcome back to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks, just like always. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. And, guys, for the past couple of weeks now, I've been going through a really serious Star Trek binge. And, you know, I'm just going to be, like, really honest with you guys about this, because... 
I don't know if I've actually talked about this on on uh, the show before, but something that I that, that that I've noticed about my own fandom, just as I've gone along through life, is I guess how the fanboy muse just kind of takes you in in uh, different directions at different times, right? So. A good example of uh, of what I'm talking about here. What I remember is that it was probably at the beginning of 2016, or actually probably closer to the end of 2015, really. But anyway, it was uh, about that time that I went through another Star Trek uh, binge, where I, I just honestly couldn't get enough Star Trek and I was watching really everything I mean it uh, it really did run the gamut you know I was watching movies I was watching a lot of TOS I was watching watching a lot of TNG um, I didn't watch all of Voyager but basically what I decided to do was watch all of the season premieres all of the season finales anything that was a a, a two-part episode or more, two or more part, uh, part episodes, and then anything related to to Q, right? And in pretty short order, what I realized is, you know, this isn't exactly a full, I guess, absorption of a Voyager, but it was nevertheless enough, I thought, to give me kind of a flavor of a Voyager. And then, like I say, I, I was watching episodes of TOS and doing this, doing that, doing the other, and honestly having a ball as I did it and then as they so often do things kind of cooled down right and then a couple of weeks ago they just sort of flared right back up again and it was once again couldn't get enough Star Trek you know need more Star Trek more and more and more and more and more and more and it just kind of made me think you know it was about a year that I since I'd had my last uh, Star Trek binge, and it just kind of made me wonder, you know, is there something about the cold air that brings out the Star Trek fan in me? You know, I don't know. It just it just sort of made me wonder, you know, because it just seems like it ha- seems to want to happen right around November, December, January, and through there, and it just kind of made me wonder, you know, what the hell's going on with that? So, any of you who are listening to this and you've experienced kind of similar things where it's like a certain time of year seems to bring out a particular fandom that you have more maybe than in than in other times of the year let me know because i i, I want to hear about it it'd be nice to know that i'm that i'm not going crazy here or that i'm not the only weird one or anything like that so trennis magnus at gmail.com that's t-r-e-n-t-u-s-m-a-g-n-u-s trennis magnus at gmail.com uh just let me know but uh, anyway in case it wasn't obvious either by the by the uh, music that that I opened the show with this week or God knows the subject matter that I've been talking about right now, today's comic is going to be a Star Trek comic. Now, just to kind of give you guys a little bit of context for all of this, I wasn't really big on Star Trek when I was a kid. I mean, I kind of liked uh, The Next Generation a little bit. But I wasn't, you know, like a hardcore Star Trek kind of guy. 
you know it it was just something that for whatever reason just didn't really capture my imagination you know I don't know why so as a result the 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 Star Trek stuff that DC was putting out in the late 90s and God knows especially in the early to, to I don't know what I just said a second ago during the late 80s and then going into the early to mid 90s which is what I meant to say the DC Star Trek stuff that was coming out around then I pretty much ignored you know didn't really get too much into it and I think as much as anything it kind of goes back to a problem that I've that I had with uh, Star Trek and I, just, I, I guess some of the prejudices that I had with Star Trek you know I mean this is something that I'm not a huge fan of at least at that time when I was a kid I wasn't a huge fan of when it came to watching the TV shows and watching the movies and all of that so why would I like the comics and guys honestly I mean I know that sounds kind of snooty and pig-headed now but looked at rationally I mean if you're at best at best the kind of the kind of television viewer that you won't necessarily turn the channel if you if you turn on the TV and there's an episode of Star Trek but this isn't exactly something that you willingly seek out well why would you be interested in reading Star Trek comics, you know, or for that matter, a comic book about any TV show that you're not nuts about, you know? So, I know it sounds kind of stupid to talk about it now, but hopefully, well, hopefully it all makes a little bit more sense now. So, anyway, today's comic, in case it wasn't obvious, and I keep talking in circles here, and forgive me, but anyway, today's comic is going to be Star Trek number one. This is uh, cover dated October of 1989, Star Trek Volume 2, number one, published by DC Comics, right? So hopefully that helps you narrow it down a little bit. And, you know, actually now that I think about it, I don't know if this is actually, like, officially designated Volume 2, because as I recall, the indicia in in this issue it doesn't actually make a mention of the volume number either way but whatever the point is if you can find Star Trek number one published by DC Comics with the cover date October of 1989 there's only gonna be one of those and that's the one I'm gonna be talking about today and one of the reasons that today's choice and and comic caught at least me off guard is I want to be careful how I say this, but uh, when it comes to Star Trek, you know, just when you say the word Star Trek, what is the first thing you think of, right? Well, whatever that first thing is, that is Star Trek to you, you know? And other things, maybe they can be Star Trek as well, but no, that first thing that you thought of, that is Star Trek, you know? And for me, when you say Star Trek, what I think of is TOS, right? That's That to me is Star Trek. Now that's not to take anything away from anything else that has the name Star Trek put to it. It's just to me, Star Trek at its best, at its purest, at its, I think, most creatively powerful, it was a TV show in the 1960s, right? That would, to me, as far as just sheer quality, that's Star Trek right and 
just a glance, just a casual glance at the cover of Star Trek number one shows you that this takes place not just in the movie continuity of Star Trek, but specifically, and actually the continuity of this, I still haven't really been completely able to nail down here. The best I'm able to say, speaking as a little bit of a Star Trek layman, the best that I can say is that Star Trek number one, which is to say the comic that I'm eventually going to talk about once I get through with all this fucking preamble here, Star Trek number one takes place sometime between Star Trek four, and I speak here of the movies, Star Trek four, The Voyage Home, and Star Trek five, The Final Frontier, right? It takes place somewhere between those two movies, right? Exactly where? No fucking idea. But it's somewhere in there, right? That's my best guess. I could be completely wrong. I don't have the encyclopedic uh, knowledge of Star Trek that, say, a Scott Gardner or a Chris Honeywell might. Or I, Actually, I think even J. David Weeder, he's kind of a Star Trek ninja himself, especially when it comes to continuity, as is my understanding. So, you know, I don't pretend to be on the same level as those guys. I just like Star Trek. But, you know, having, like, a working knowledge of it, I'm not really the guy to talk to about all of that. You know, I consider myself to be, you know, relatively knowledgeable when it comes to Batman comics. I consider myself to be probably somewhere above average in terms of knowledgeability with Superman comics, but whether it's comics or whether it's movies or whether it's TV shows or just whatever, when it comes to Star Trek, guys, I'm not gonna pretend to be something that I'm not. I am not an expert. I like it. But I am not an expert, right? So forgive me if I'm completely screwing up the continuity details here. But anyway, as I say, the reason that today's comic, Star Trek number one, the reason that that kind of caught me off guard whenever I was deciding what I want to talk about this week is because of the fact that this looks, uh, that this comic just manifestly looks like it takes place somewhere during the movie continuity. And it's not that I don't like those TOS movies. I do. But, like I say, I mean, to me, Star Trek is, that, is TOS, you know, the TV show, you know? And I would say that's really where it works at its best, you know? I just really wasn't overly fond, uh, or let me rephrase that, I wasn't as fond, and am not as fond of the, uh, of the uh, TOS movies as I am of just TOS, you know? And so maybe that's a reflection on the movies or maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, I don't know, but for some reason you know, I just wouldn't have thought that a comic book set in the general era of the movies I don't know, I just didn't think that would be my thing, you know, but somewhat in this first issue and certainly as as this ongoing series gets underway yeah this is totally my cup of tea so I'll circle back to that in just a little while though but I just obviously I wanted to spend a fair amount of time setting the table on all of this because it does need to be I do want you guys to understand that I guess what the contours of my Star Wars uh, Star Trek knowledge really is does that make sense hope so Anyway, so to get into, <clears throat> excuse me, to get into uh, today's comic, though, as I've gone to pains to say at this point, 
This is Star Trek number one. Cover date is October 1989. On sale date is August the 22nd, 1989. Cover price is a buck fifty. Penciler is James W. Fry. Inker is Arnie Starr. Writer is Peter David. Letterer is Bob Panaha. Colorist is Tom McCraw. Editor is Robert Greenberger. Story synopsis, and it's kind of brief because I'm sure I'm going to spend a lot of time poring over all of this. So the story synopsis is as follows. The Klingon ambassador, the one that we saw in Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, the Klingon ambassador to, to uh, Starfleet, or actually I guess the, Fader- uh, the uh, Federation, announces a price on Kirk's head. Elsewhere, the Enterprise responds to a distress call and rescues a, a Nazgul expatriate. The leader of the, Na- uh, of the Nazgul, that is to say a character known only as the Sala, arrives to take the prisoner from Kirk. The Nazgulians, frequently shortened to, Naz- to, to Nazgul, are a skeletal, yellow-skinned species. Sala demands the the expatriate be returned to his, meaning the, the, the Sala's uh, custody. Kirk refuses, and so the Sala pronounces death on the expatriate, and indeed, he dies right then and there. The Sala then points to Captain Kirk and says, And now, Captain Kirk, I shall pronounce sentence on you. After that, the scene cuts over to a meeting between the Klingon ambassador and the president of the Federation. And the Klingon ambassador basically announces, as I said a second ago, announces a price on the head of Captain James T. Kirk. To be continued. So... What did I think? Well, I guess to take it from the beginning with the cover, this is a kind of generic sort of cover. It's basically the Enterprise crew, which is to say Scott, starting from the left and then working over. uh, Scotty, Yahura, Bones, Kirk, Spock, Sulu, and Chekhov, right? And there's this sort of glory shot of the Enterprise uh, right beneath them on the cover. And... Like I say, it's just, it's a little generic, you know, it's not, it's not bad or anything, but I don't know. I mean, I guess it's a, it's a good cover for a first issue of a Star Trek comic, but if you knew nothing about what happens in this story already, there's really nothing on the cover to give that away for you, you know? So I don't know whether that's good or whether that's bad. I cannot say I, just want to at least throw that out there. To get into page one, though, we get a close-up of the Klingon ambassador last seen in Star Trek uh, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. And I honestly don't think that this character ever even receives a name, or if he does, I guess I'm just blanking on it. But anyway, he's basically pointing to the reader, and he's snarling and saying, there shall be no peace as long as Kirk lives. And I don't know why... And I was kind of too lazy to check into this. I I don't know why, but there's something about this that seems like it's an homage to something. Like I don't know why, but what I'm what I'm thinking of is a Fantastic Four comic that maybe this is uh, paying tribute to 
some Fantastic Four comic, and I'm, I don't know, I'm kind of soft on what the reference is, but it seems like this is a reference to something, like something is being homaged here, you know, and this is not to speak of, I guess, some of the Jack Kirby sort of quality that uh, the art on the first page has. I don't know why. I mean, it, it just seems like it's a little bit of a tribute to Jack Kirby, too. So it just sort of makes me wonder, is this a comic that was draw, drawn by Jack Kirby that's being that's being paid tribute to here? I don't know. Anyway, so <clears throat> we get a little bit of... <clears throat> excuse me, I don't know what exactly is going on with my dry throat. It, see, this, this always happens. It never fails. You know, my... My throat will be just fine all day long, but it's like the second I start podcasting, then I start having to clear my throat, and it gets all dry and shit. And so, anyway, don't really understand what that's all about. But anyway, we, on page two, we discover that this is a, a scene uh, on, a, I'm just going to call it what it is. It's a TV that uh, Kirk is watching here. And it's it's basically Kirk and Spock. I Spock, sorry. Kirk and Bones, they're basically watching this Klingon ambassador announce that there isn't going to be peace as long as Captain Kirk is alive. And they basically just... They're they're kind of needling one another here. But at the same time, I mean, they're talking about, let's face it, something that's a very real threat to, I guess, relations with the Klingon Empire. And it's it's pretty evident that Kirk at least thinks that if he has a chance to sit down with this ambassador, he can find a way to defuse all of this. You know, this doesn't have to degenerate into total war. There may be a chance to to clear the air a little bit, you know? And I kind of like, on the one hand, that Kirk is so self-assured... But on the other hand, I mean, I kind of have to wonder, you know, how big of a rush is Kirk really likely to be in to make peace with the Klingons? I mean, of all of all people, like if it was, I don't know, if we like if we were if we were talking about the Romulans, yeah, I could see Kirk being, you know, open perhaps to friendlier terms, you know, maybe less frosty relations with the Romulans, right? But the Klingons, I mean, Kirk has a lot of baggage when it comes to the Klingons, and I don't think, well, I don't know, whatever. I mean, on the one hand, it's like, I don't completely buy that he would just take this lying down, or for that matter, that he's very interested in in making nice with the Klingons, but on the other hand, that leaves me in the position of disagreeing with Peter David, and it's, it, I don't know, it's usually not my business to do that, so, I don't know, it's, it's a strange catch-22 that I find myself facing here. So, anyway, Bones and Kirk basically take a shuttle up to, I guess, Space Dock, to pay a visit to uh, the Enterprise, and... As much as anything, I, I guess just get down to business. And there's actually this weird sort of moment. This is on page six. I'm sure this character has a name. It's just damned if I know what it is. But on page six, panel one, we see this this green-skinned, yellow-haired 
officer on the Enterprise. And basically, he looks like he could be Brainiac 5's older brother. <clears throat> and I swear to think that we see him again in, in issues still to come. But it's just offhand. I mean, I'm completely blanking on who this character is. But the instant I laid eyes on him, I mean, I just kind of had a brain fart. And for some reason, it's like I, I thought I was reading a Legion of Superheroes comic. And if that sounds kind of stupid to any of you, well, I ask that you remember that, at least for me, the way I've always looked at the Legion is they're basically, the Legion of Superheroes as a concept is basically Star Trek in in tights it's basically star trek with superpowers but star trek and the legion of superheroes they're really not all that different from one another when you really start thinking about it and so if seeing and this is the point if seeing this green-skinned enterprise crewman and mistaking him for brainiac 5 for just a second if that seems kind of retarded to you well there you go. There's your justification. So, anyway. Also on page six, Kirk remembers the destruction of the previous Enterprise and expresses some amount of regret that he didn't go down with the ship. And Bones, being something of a realist here, he says, Jim, for all the human attributes we give inanimate objects... That's still all they are. You didn't betray or murder the Enterprise. And Kirk's reply to that is, I wish I could believe that. And that kind of says something about, I mean, look, everybody knows that the Enterprise is Starfleet's flagship, right? That's not breaking news to anybody. Although if it is, if you never heard that before, email me and let me know, because I'd be kind of interested in, knowing that I shared some Star Trek info with somebody who wasn't aware of that. So let me know. TrennisMagnus at gmail.com. But the point is, Kirk obviously feels a tremendous amount of responsibility and honestly, a very personal connection to the original Enterprise. This wasn't just a ship to him. You know, notwithstanding the fact that this is Starfleet's flagship, this was something a lot more personal than that to to Kirk. You know, it's like, this is the wife that he never had, you know, and that's the kind of connection that he has with the Enterprise. And I kind of like that, you know, the idea that, you know, Kirk is, he, he, he takes it not just that seriously, but that personally, that, this ha number one, that it happened, but number two, that it happened on his watch. And so number three, a little bit of regret that he didn't go down with the love of his life, you know? And I don't know. I mean, it's just, I kind of like that. You know, one of the, one of the gripes that I've always sort of had with, I guess the, the Abrams verse you know, New Trek or whatever it's called, is that Chris Pine's Kirk in the first two movies, 
he didn't seem like the kind the kind of guy that would privately mourn if the Enterprise were to get destroyed. Now, we saw a, a like a tiny little bit of that in Star Trek Beyond. There's this moment when what's left of the Enterprise crashes on that planet inside the nebula. And you can see Kirk's face, or at least the reflection of Kirk's face. And it looks like he basically got punched right in the gut. And I guess that's fine. But, and and you know what? Honestly, to be fair to New Trek and whatever is going to follow up Star Trek Beyond, for all anybody knows, we may see something in whatever the fourth movie is that Kirk is... He's handling the loss of the first Enterprise about as about as badly in that movie as Kirk in this issue is the loss of the last Enterprise in, what was it? Was it the search for Spock where the Enterprise was destroyed? I don't remember, I, but I'm pretty sure it was the search for Spock. I don't want to say that, I don't think it was Wrath of Khan. I'm pretty sure it wasn't. But uh, either way, you know, how seriously Kirk's take, uh, Kirk takes this, we may see that in the upcoming fourth Star Trek movie, or New Trek movie, or Abrams movie, you know, fuck whatever it is. You know, but it's just the way that it is right now, and this is the point, the way that it is right now, I couldn't picture Chris Pine's version of Kirk mourning the Enterprise to the same degree, where there's a certain amount of almost self-flagellation that that Kirk is putting himself through here because of what happened with the Enterprise. And I just think that's good character. So anyway, getting into page seven, you've got Spock and he's basically uh, playing chess with an as yet unnamed uh, new crewman. Actually, her, fuck it. Her name is Myra. I'm just, I'm not even going to try to build up to it. Her name is Myra. Anyway. And I don't, I don't actually know this to be true, but I'm operating on the assumption here that James Fry, the artist of this issue, was just getting started in his career. And so maybe there are certain things that he didn't really understand. One of which is you generally don't want to have duplicate panels or, for that matter, unnecessary panels. And so there's... Uh, in a panel two, we see Sulu, Spock, and Chekhov uh, watching the chessboard, right? And they're having some dialogue with one another. And then in the next panel, it's almost identical to... The third panel is almost identical to the second panel, except it's totally silent, right? Nobody says anything. Then we get a close-up of uh, Myra's tail moving a rook around on the chessboard. And... Then we cut to, this is the fifth panel, we cut to Sulu, Spock, and Chekhov reacting to Myra's move there. And it's just, this is a kind of, it would help, I, I hope you guys are looking at this page if you can, because, uh, and this is uh, page seven, I hope you guys are looking at this because it, page, or, or uh, panel three is just unnecessary, it it doesn't need to be there, or it doesn't need to be what it is. Panel three could basically be exactly what it is, but you, there could have been uh, Myra's tail moving the rook around. And then panel four could have been 
uh, Sulu, Spock, and Chekhov reacting to that, and then spread across the bottom of page seven could have been Myra saying check and kind of gloating about it, you know? And that, I think, would have been the better way to structure this page. And this is just something I've noticed about Fry's work in this series, at least as far as I've read it. He does good work, you know, from a technical standpoint, but some of the fundamentals of storytelling in, in comics, he's still trying to to figure out and and work his way toward, you know, and there are certain things that he hadn't really mastered at the uh, at the time that he that he was working on this title, and so some things aren't as well done maybe as they might have been in the hands of a different artist. I'm not trying to sound like I'm criticizing him. I'm just saying that there are certain things that there are just certain goofs that that that. Uh, James Fry makes that I don't think uh, a more seasoned and veteran type of artist would necessarily do. So anyway, make of that whatever you want. So from there, uh, getting into, this is uh, page eight. Uh, basically, uh, Spock turns the tables on Myra and he even makes the remark of, he, he says, I taught you everything you know of chess but not everything I know. And then she replies with, I gave you a rough moment or two there, though. And Spock's answer to that is, if you mean emotional distress, certainly not. And if I were capable of such emotions, the only one I would, uh, I would have, or rather, the only one I, that, that I would have felt would be pride that a pupil has so challenged her teacher. You know, and so what I like about, and this is kind of what I'm driving at in all of this, reading all of this dialogue to you. What I kind of like about this, really, I, I would say the first several issues of this series, but especially this first issue, it doesn't really take for granted that you've seen the Star Trek movies or you saw TOS on TV and reruns or something. It doesn't necessarily take that for granted. It introduces these characters to you, who they are and what makes them tick as though they're completely new characters. And on the one hand, I mean, just like to say that out loud, it seems like a weird thing to do with something that's an adaptation. I mean, Star Trek is pretty much an institution in the culture, and especially it was back in the 80s. And so in one sense, you know, it seems a little bit weird and kind of redundant that there would be so much care paid to characterization and introducing the characters and, and whatnot rather than advancing the story and just hammering, right, uh, hammering away on plot, 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 you know? But when you think about it, I guess it's possible that somebody's entire experience with Star Trek is literary in nature because this was a time when, you know, there was no Netflix and... For the most part, TOS wasn't really available on home video. You know, this idea of releasing an entire season of a show on videotape, I don't think that ever happened. Unless it was like weird aberration type stuff. Things that were short-run TV shows to begin with anyway, like TV miniseries or TV movies and stuff like that. But otherwise, I'm not really aware of 
entire seasons of a TV show being released on videotape, generally speaking, the best you could usually hope for was that there might be like a best of sort of compilation. So, and I swear to think that there, there actually were things like this for Star Trek where you could, you could go out and buy like collections of uh, Star Trek episodes that would have things like, I don't know, the trouble with tribbles and where no man has gone before and balance of terror and stuff like that. Basically the most obvious uh, TOS episodes and you could get collections and stuff like that, or you could rent or buy the movies and stuff. But for the most part, the idea of having widespread access to Star Trek episodes, I mean, unless you lived in an area that had syndication of, of Star Trek going, you might not have access to very much Star Trek. So maybe it does make sense to establish or perhaps reestablish who these characters are and basically give you a flavor of what their personalities are like. So, so as to kind of give new readers, assuming that there, there were any, some kind of entree into the story, you know? And one of the things that, that comes out of that, not so much in this issue, but in issues to come is that it seems obvious, at least to me that Peter David has taken these characters apart, studied them, glued them back together, uh, deconstructed them, reconstructed them. He's done all of that long before ever uh, writing a single page of, of Star Trek comics. And so there's a lot of internal logic and consistency that ends up happening with, with all of these different characters that absolutely resonates with who they've always been, but still serves as an introduction to anyone who didn't know already just who these characters are based on their words, based on their actions, decisions that they make and actions that they take and all of these, and and all of these other things, it really does set the table very nicely on what exactly makes these characters tick. What's so special about the enterprise? What's so special about Starfleet? So on and so forth, you know? And I dig that, you know, it is just incredibly well done. So anyway, in the pages to come, we basically find out that Chekhov is anything but a ladies' man. Sulu is very popular uh, with the ladies, and the ladies are actually very popular with him. Because this was the 80s, and I guess certain people hadn't made certain assumptions about Sulu and who he is, if you catch my, my drift there. And... Overall, the next couple of pages just really do a lot to... On the one hand... See, there's kind of a double purpose being served here. On the one hand, you know, uh, pages 10, 11, and 12... Or actually, I guess really pages 10 and 11... They do so much to, I guess, set the scene in terms of you know, what functions all of these different crewmen serve on the Enterprise, you know, what their jobs are and the tasks that, that they perform. But on the other hand, you know, the Star Trek fan, the one who's, who, who'd been around since forever, and you know, since probably day one, watching the show back in the 60s first run, and had stuck with Star Trek, you know, through the entire run of the show, 
through the movies and ugh, the animated show. And now in the comics, I mean, just hitting them right in their fanboy buttons, all the stuff that they love seeing about Star Trek, which I have to assume includes seeing uh, all of the usual suspects on the bridge of the Enterprise. And, you know, they're all there. They're in uniform. They're in character. They're gabbing with each other and just having a great old time. This serves the purpose of introducing all of these different characters and how they relate to each other and what their jobs are on the ship. But it also hits the seasoned fan right between the eyes, hit, you know, pushing their fanboy buttons and showing them all the things that they love about Star Trek and love really since the beginning. These two pages do both of those things at the same time, and they do both of them exceedingly well, you know? It's just, I think, really well done. And to kind of make up for what I was saying earlier about Fry and his art, you know, for whatever he sometimes may lack in terms of the fundamentals in uh, structuring a page, his line style is rock solid. And he draws these characters not so that they look like caricatures. They look like comic book characters, but they're still recognizably DeForest Kelly. There's, uh, they're still uh, William Shatner. There's still Nichelle Nichols. You know, there's still uh, Leonard Nimoy. You know, so on and so forth. And it's really well done. So, very well done. So, moving into other things. Uh, Chekhov starts, well, combat training, for lack of a better way of putting it. Uh, somebody new, a new crewman. This is Ensign. I, I think I'm supposed to pronounce this Photon. So Ensign Photon. And uh, Ensign Photon basically kicks Chekhov's ass in their little sparring match that they have here. So in short order, the Enterprise answers a distress call and basically beams the Nazgulian onto the ship right as his ship blows up. They beam him onto the Enterprise. And this ends up causing a little bit of a, a little bit of conflict, one might say, with the Sala, who demands that the expatriate uh, be returned to, to their custody. And that ends up basically ca uh, causing the Nazgulian ship to fire on the Enterprise, which is probably the stupidest idea they've had all year because their their phasers are basically useless against the Enterprise's shields, whereas the Enterprise's phasers pretty much vaporize them on contact. And it's just, it's not even a battle. It's, it's, it's just, it's over almost even before it starts. So, in short order, the Sala uh, uh, makes contact with the Enterprise, and this whole time, the the uh, Nazgulian uh, expatriate is basically begging the Enterprise crew to turn off the monitor and basically sever communications with the Sala, but it's never really made clear why until until the Sala says. It's time to pronounce sentence. Death. And then the Nazgulian expatriate pretty much keels over and dies right there. And so it's kind of like, what the...
the fuck is even going on here? And we don't really get an answer to that in this issue. That's still to come. Elsewhere, uh, back on Earth, uh, during a, a Federation Council meeting, the Klingon ambassador basically puts out a bounty on Kirk's head, offering riches beyond compare to anyone who brings the Klingon Empire the head of James T. Kirk. And that is where the issue leaves off, you know? And like I say, I mean, this issue, I'm not taking anything away from it. It's enjoyable. I dig it. It's a lot of fun. And I recommend it, honestly, to to any Star Trek fan. If you've always been a little bit reticent about Star Trek comics, you'll like this title. This title is exceedingly well done. And so I'm not taking anything away from all of that, but it's like any first issue. It has to accomplish a lot of different tasks. And those are narrative challenges that just do not exist as the, as, as the series unfolds and we get further and further along with the story. Really cool stuff is on the horizon. And, you know, that stuff I think is overall, and this is the point, that stuff is overall just more enjoyable than a lot of what we saw here. Again, not trying to talk smack or anything. I realize that our first issue has to in introduce or reintroduce the characters, has to establish the conflict, has to lay, you know, the basic foundation for the story and where everything's going to go. All of that stuff requires a shitload of exposition, and I get that, you know? I'm just saying that, you know, just the nuts and bolts of all of this stuff, it basically results in subsequent issues being better than what we get here. So that's no criticism of this issue. It's just a recognition. If anything, actually, it's a compliment. The seeds that Peter David plants starting in this issue come into bloom very quickly in the issues to come, and that's why things improve so much. You know, that's why I like the upcoming issues even more than this one. So anyway, all of this is meant to be a recommendation. Guys, I fucking love this title. It's extremely well done. Now, I want to say that it was right around this same time that Michael Jan Friedman was uh, getting going on a Star Trek The Next Generation series, also published by DC Comics. And as good as that series is, and it is good, but for as good as that series is, you know, I think I like the Star Trek TOS series even more, you know? than the the next generation series it's not saying that one is somehow worse than the other it's just there's something so familiar and i guess tos oriented about about this title it just speaks more to my inner star trek fanboy you know does that make sense so anyway hopefully that all does make sense but anyway so point is, I think that's pretty much it for me this week. Now, as to next week, I'm not really too sure what I'm going to be talking about just yet because I've got a couple of different ideas for, you know, where I might want to go next week in terms of my subject. So, basically, I'm going to be a little bit, uh, a little bit coy about it now, and I guess just leave my options open. So, at the time that I record all of this, it would be fair to say that you guys probably know more about what's coming next week than I do, but anyway... 
whatever's coming next week, I'm sure it's going to be awesome. So anyway, I think that's pretty much it for this week, though. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Guard Holdings. It's the all-new iPalantir. Email, text messaging, FaceTime, YouTube. Why settle for obsolete technologies? With the iPalantir, you can chit-chat with your friends, catch up with loved ones, and receive orders from the Dark Lord Sauron himself, all with one easy-to-use device. And you won't just see a video of them. With the iPalantir's patented Great Lidless Eye technology developed in Mordor, you will literally see them. The iPalantir comes in a snazzy array of colors including charcoal, cloudy, sooty, obsidian, murky, and all new this year, the eye-catching onyx. Large family? No problem. The iPalantir easily networks with other iPalantirs. It's so simple that it's positively enchanting. And if you act now, eligible smartphones can be exchanged for up to $200 in credit. So, throw away your bulky old iPhone and trade up to the all-new iPalantir. The iPalantir is simultaneously the next generation of private communication and a throwback to simpler times. You know, back before a pack of midgets could screw things up for everybody else. Isengard Holdings. Making communication magic. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about 
the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy. <laughs>